Is it possible that our depictions of God could be clarified by thinking through metaphors provided by pop culture? Or could we say that our self-interpretations of God are always subverted by Jesus? Hello, this is Todd Littleton with Pathological, the podcast for the pastor theologian. You can find us at pathological.com, pathological.net, or toddlittleton.net. Pathological is a podcast for the pastor theologian, that is, for those who are interested in a public and practical theology where we explore the intersection of life and faith and theological reflection. We're looking at all the available resources, both from church tradition and history, as well as contemporary or maybe you might say um, current uh, thinking about uh, uh, interpretation, about God, about theology. And we invite you along as we uh, interview guests, writers, authors, practitioners, students who will help us think about the ways our own interpretation of God sometimes need to be undermined by Jesus himself. Today on the podcast, I'm excited to have Eric Hall Eric is uh, Archbishop Raymond G. Hunthausen Professor of Peace and Social Justice, teaching theology and philosophy at Carroll College in Helena, Montana. He's the author of The Paradox of Authenticity and a noted lecture on faith and reason. His new book is in a series, uh, uh, Homebrew Christianity's Guide to series, the title is God, Everything You Ever Need to Know About the Almighty. Certainly you can pick up from the title that uh, if you have uh, seen the movie Bruce Almighty, you see maybe uh, a glimpse or an allusion to the way pop culture will show up as Eric takes us through uh, a various uh, number of uh, interpretations, self-interpretations, um, models that people have used through uh, church history, Christian history, current history, to talk about God. And then he points us effectively to Jesus. In the podcast, the first little bit is uh, Eric recounting his own personal journey uh, in a conversion to uh, becoming a Catholic. And uh, I found it interesting, so we'll lead with that, and we break right in, uh, and then we get to talking about the book. There'll be a few announcements on the back end of the podcast, and as always, we hope you'll share the podcast. You'll give us a five-star rating and a review on iTunes. you help us get found. And along the way, maybe make a suggestion as to who you would like to hear us talk to about the issues of life, faith, and the intersection of theology, where we're looking for a, a, both a practical and public expression in uh, today's world. So without uh, further ado, here's my conversation with Eric Hall. Thanks for listening. Yeah, so uh, becoming Catholic. Um, yeah, it's actually been a really strange process, if I'm honest. I started off, uh, it's been a strange spiritual journey for me. Um, I grew up in a semi-religious family. I say semi because part of my family was really religious, uh, and my own immediate family, we were off and on with uh, mostly Assemblies of God. Mm. Um, and so... Uh, you know, I had, uh, I had the tragic event of losing my father when I was 15, and that pushed me, I'd say, into the Assemblies of God Church fully, 
and uh, a congregation reached out to me and they, you know, they raised me as one of their own, which I am deeply, deeply, deeply grateful for. We'll never forget the people who, uh, who more or less sustained me uh, during that period of my life. Um, but I, I did, I think, with the same sort of uh, vexing questions that you have, uh, you know, I, 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 I found that I was in a denomination that, while filled with lovely people, seemed, um, it, it didn't want to question <laughs> its own theology. It got caught in its own common sense and was unwilling to push. So, for instance, I went to an Assemblies of God school uh, that allowed for a philosophy of and religion degree, but not a theology degree. Um, and that, that was interesting. Now, let me make clear, my professors in this, they thought theologically they are still good friends of mine. I think they're wonderful people. Um, and they, they are the ones who, ironically, I think, pushed me into a Catholic way of thinking <laughs> to their own chagrin. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I think that's where it started to stem from. So then I went on and got a degree in philosophy from Loyola Marymount University. I had been introduced to philosophy by um, this Jesuit thinker named Bernard Lonergan. And then I went into Aristotle from there. So these are Catholic thinkers to their core. This is what began to, in some ways, categorize the way and how I thought until I found myself, uh, one, a Platonist. No, not many people can say that. By right. Way. No, that's right. I think, <laughs> I think I was a genuine Platonist for about uh, two years of my life after grad school. Where I said, yeah, I can affirm the good. Uh, I just, I don't know what Jesus has to do with it. Right. And then I said, then I rediscovered it. I, when I, once I was able to overcome this notion of God as wrathful, as spiteful towards us, um, and see that Christ was a visible, material manifestation of the good and God's will for us, then I was able to say, oh, okay, I see where the tradition has been pointing um, all along. And I think all Christian traditions point toward this, if I'm honest. Right. Uh, and uh, that... That led me first to uh, the Episcopal Church, uh, which, uh, if I may, I consider Catholic light. Uh, and I, I just, I, I just wasn't as concerned with the issues that the Episcopal Church was concerned with. I was concerned. I found out with the incarnation and the preservation of the doctrine of incarnation and its importance. And that eventually it, it led me to have to be honest with myself. And I said, I think that's where the Catholic church ultimately stands for all its faults, for whatever else it does that ostracizes people. That's ultimately what it's a testament to. Yeah. Didn't doesn't hurt that a lot of my family uh, in the Milwaukee area are Catholic too. So it was a pretty natural uh, reorientation. Okay. Well, today on the podcast, I'm excited to have Eric Hall. Eric uh, is the author of a new book, God, Everything You Needed to Know About the Almighty. Uh, Eric is the uh, Archbishop Raymond G. Hunthausen Professor of Peace and Social Justice, and he teaches theology and philosophy at Carroll College in Helmand, Montana. Eric, I'm glad to have you on the podcast. Yeah, thanks a lot. I know it's like a German-esque title, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's okay. You know, philosophy <laughs> professor, teach philosophy. you got to have at least some German, right? <laughs> that's right. Hey, uh, you listen, I, uh, I really have enjoyed your book. Um, I've enjoyed the series, of course, that this is part of, but I really have enjoyed your book. And um, so I, I want to jump right into a couple of things. And then as we kind of go back and forth, pitch it a couple of different ways, we'll just uh, yeah. take our time with it. Um, well, one thing that, that um, I was thinking about 
is that um, you open up space to talk about God uh, via, and use uh, a lot of metaphors. In fact, I'm a Karate Kid uh, junkie. I, I, you know, I remember how old I was when Karate Kid came out. But, you know, yeah. the wax on and the wax off and Mr. Miyagi was, I, I just love, every time I see it come on again, I'll sit down and watch it again. And I, I'm wondering, I know. I'm wondering, so uh, what, what, what prodded you to use sort of those metaphors to talk about the way we talk about God and the way we variously talked about God in the history of the church? Yeah, Absolutely. So I, I first the first time I wrote this book, and I wrote this book twice, I got the comments back, and my editor said, "Yeah, this sounds like a graduate level book. That's great, but let's uh, let's make it so that the average everyday person can understand where you're going." So I started trying to immediately think through metaphors that could draw out. I mean, I try to use absurd metaphors in some ways, right? Uh, because they stick with you. Uh, but I wanted to use metaphors that could also draw out the essential characteristics of the the concepts of God that have held sway and do hold sway in the Western Church. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I had originally tried. I wanted to write it with my favorite MMA uh, <laughs> fighters in mind, and then I realized that would probably ostracize about three quarters of my audience, especially with Trip. Uh, <laughs> right. You can, we can give him a hard time for that one. Yeah. <laughs> so I, so instead I said, well, hold on. Well, let's start with Mr. Miyagi, and he was the closest thing to an MMA fighter. And, and then I just I tried to just think of images that fit with the concepts of God that I was trying to uh, trying to unfold. And my, my, my three favorite uh, are Mr. Miyagi, uh, Jersey Shore, and... Uh, and your hippie aunt, which I still kind of chuckle at because I'm trying hard to poke my process friends on that one. Yes, that that was that was uh, pretty pretty good, uh, pretty clear and funny along the way. Um, you know, on on that line, you know, um, one of the things that that you've done is open up the space for people to to recognize kind of what their central concept is, without yeah. without being critical. You show some weaknesses, but you, you do a really good job of drawing out uh, along the way, especially as the book unfolds, the ways those pieces of the particular concepts that we find for God in the history of the church that really kind of give us a more robust vision uh, that you kind of point to as you unpack it toward your kind of uh, aimed-for goal. Was, sure. uh, was um, what... Uh, what can you tell us about um, mining the tradition in that way? Because normally uh, someone will stop off at a place they like. So they take a look at the tradition and they stop off at some point and decide, okay, this is where I'm going to stay and I'm going to plant here, draw out all the particular concepts and realities that are in the way it shapes my understanding of reality. And that's it. I'm staying and yeah. I then yeah. respond to every other concept out of that particular, you know, I pulled off that cul-de-sac for a while. But y- sure. you actually are inviting us to, well, I think you have, I don't, I don't know if my analogy is going to work, but it, it, while you've got a pretty good thoroughfare you're heading down, you're showing us along the way through tradition how these, how these um, uh, contribute 
How do you help someone pull out of their cul-de-sac? Yeah, it's a, yeah, awesome question. I So I had this insight uh, probably my senior year in undergraduate where I said God and the truth can't be distinct from one another. Um, and if God and the truth can't be distinct from one another, I have to be willing to engage in any and every truth that emerges uh, that I see. Uh, and, I, and I think that that became a very uh, that, that became a guiding light for me in all things. And I, I'm not going to say I'm good with this, but we tend to focus in on what we want to hear. Right. Mm, right. Uh, and we like to hear the things uh, Socrates talks about this in uh, any number of his uh, Plato's dialogues about him. We simply like to hear what what people tell us, and we want to hear what we want to hear. Look at the political processes we engage in in this last uh, political season, uh, and that's simply what you find, uh, that people generally listen only to what they want to hear. But I think if you take this attitude whereby you're willing to see any position as containing a partial truth, mm that could contribute to a fuller and more uh, productive sense of the truth itself, then I, think, uh, then I think it opens you up to the whole of tradition in such a way that you're not just picking and choosing, you're sifting through and trying to weigh the truths of various positions against one another. Now, how you do that becomes very, very difficult, and you have to have sort of guiding principles along the way, but I, I think you just got to approach uh, each and every de- idea that someone has is containing a partial truth, and it could be true, more false than it is true, but you got to sift out that truth, figure it out. Yeah. So the, at some point along the way, if you've pulled off into one of these, you know, side roads or cul-de-sacs or these kind of particular stops along the, the way, it, it seems to me that not, not only do you have to kind of you know, have this openness to what other truths might lie in other places, you have to be aware that there are real questions. Yeah. Because yeah. because some people lock out that those aren't questions anymore. So if I get in this particular, I travel on this particular road and I've kind of opted for this particular framework, then uh, a, what might be a question for you is not a question for me. And I'm like, what's, what's Eric's problem? Why, why is... Why has Eric got that question? It's it's really simple. It's really easy. So, uh, do you, as you're teaching, as you're as you're, uh, I think you're going to be involved in some youth kind of stuff, if I remember right, uh, in the book. You got kind of a, we'll, we'll get we'll, we'll get into that. But but I mean, there has to be some prov- provocation, right? I mean, some yeah. pro- provoking, evocative question that hits you that you thought you had everything kind of figured, if you will, for that particular question, and then something happens. Some question comes yeah. up. Uh, that's right. I, and, and I think that's uh, – I, I don't know how to foster that. I'm still trying to figure that out because, you know, I know people come down hard on millennials. I think that millennials have their own issues uh, and that they're also a beautiful generation in their own right, that they, uh, that they struggle with things that my generation X didn't struggle with and we struggle with things they didn't struggle with. But – what they really seem to struggle with to me is trying to get them to simply question and wonder for its own sake, really engage in the wonder that's at maybe the core of the human experience uh, and allow that to, to sort of take them uh, in new directions. So, yeah, I, I don't know how you get that. I think, 
I think that, so there's, there's a couple thoughts here. Um, one, maybe this is what uh, the hermeneutic notion of God is that I talked about in the book, which I expressed through the idea of Joan of Arc. Somewhere uh, uh, along the way, our world is simply upset, disordered, and we have a choice right then to say, okay, I can try to reconstruct that world in the way it was uh, and convince myself that that's how things were, or I can say, what what are the assumptions that I had about that world, and what it you know, what, what do I need to explore to see what was going wrong there? And we, we all have this experience. It can come in the form of, you know, an anxiety attack. It happened with me uh, in college as I started questioning this notion of a tit-for-tat God. Is that really how God works, or is that the pagan notion of, uh, you know, the Greek, uh, Greek Zeus notion of God, whereby we have to pay God certain dividends to receive certain goods? Um and that, that really upset my world at the time, right? So I think if we're just attendant to the phenomenon around us, we're going to see that we have these ideas of how things work out, and it never quite captures things as they are. So if we just attend to those sort of outliers of our ideas, uh, it at least gives us a chance to begin to question. But how you care about that and how you come to care about that, I don't know how to foster that yet. Uh, I guess through, through showing the type of freedom and the type of, uh, frankly, uh, love that I think can emerge from that, that, that sort of experience. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was thinking uh, along as you were kind of, you know, riding along, and, and I'm thinking about some conversations that I've had or witnessed where um, questions get really shot down uh, as yeah. you're thinking too much, and which completely discounts what is prompting that thinking. So it's kind of completely ignoring. And I got to thinking about um, Robert Weber's little book, um, Evangelicals on the Road to, on, uh, Evangelicals on the Canterbury Trail. Sure. You know, and he, he really talks about faith in three phases. You know, you have the faith you're given, uh, you have the faith you question, and then you have the faith you embrace. Yep. And, and you yep. never have what's yours if you never go through the question. So if it, so if 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 you really are interacting, engaging in the world around you, like you're describing it, if you're really being attentive to what's out there, at some point there is going to be a question. In fact, I think there's always going to be a question. So you're always going to be embracing and re-embracing that faith that is is yours. Would, would that does that fit um, your experience? Yeah, I think that, that's, a, that's actually a beautiful way to put it, right? I mean, we're, and you, you can think of it even beyond faith, right? We're, we're born into our parents' values. They teach us things, hopefully for the better, sometimes for the worse. Um, we enter into this adolescent period where we're in question, right? And then we, we somehow come to grips with, uh, with, our, with our parents. It seems to be a pretty traditional Western experience, right? Yeah. I have, I've yeah. had it, probably still having it. As uh, now I have two children and I'm going, holy crap, that was uh, harder than I thought on that. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I, and I think, I think the, addition, the added fact is, is uh, the empty nest midlife crisis aspect of, of that uh, stretch, you know, because you settle in sure. for a period of parenting and because you're a tug in a variety of directions, if we can make that, you know, imagery work, and, and then once that's out, now you get to think again. 
You know, you're not chasing to yeah. this uh, practice or that practice or this school event or that school event. So you've got all the things, all the answers to all the questions that all the kids are asking, and then you're facing a different part of your life. You're facing a different part of life without your children. Now you're looking at your spouse and going like, now do I remember who you were when it was just us two? And and and, and you get all those questions unpacking, unfolding, and you have, there are some things that happen because then you face mortality in an entirely different way than the concern about, are my kids going to live, you know? And now it's, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? And there are questions that naturally kind of pop out of that. And now I start looking around the world in a complete different way. So I think that's why I think it's kind of an ongoing sort of, you know, cycle. And I, I like yours, adolescent to adult. And I thought, well, man, I got to throw in midlife crisis because, oh, right. I mean, yeah, I'm, I, that's my age, you know. <laughs> No, no, I hear you. No, I think that's, uh, I haven't experienced that one yet. I'm just trying to keep up with my kids right. uh, at this point. You're right. So I, I think that's going to be a totally new, uh, a totally, and, and uh, it's a beautiful way of putting it because uh, to bring up middle life crisis, because it's circumstances oftentimes, yeah. uh, circumstances we didn't ask for, uh, circumstances that we're just kind of thrown into that change the perceptions we had of the world and allow us to see it uh, in new light. And again, I think this is where, the notion of truth that I was bringing up is important. Um, I'm not a relativist in the least. I want to make that clear. I actually stand ardently against the idea of relativism if we even need to bring that up. And I argue uh, vociferously, I don't know how I thought of that word, uh, against it in my book. But it's also important to recognize that one always exists as finite in a partial truth, that one really is getting something right and that there is likely more and much more to uh, more truth to be yielded at different phases when we become open to the possibilities. Um, we're not infinite, after all. We can only see what we can see at any particular given point in time. Yeah, I like that because uh, the, the accusation uh, either runs either runs to relativism or it runs to subjectivism. And yeah. so, so the critics of those who are continuing to plow and question, are accused of submitting to some sort of subjectivist impulse that results from some of these events rather than saying, no, I've got a real life, real lived experience I've got to yep. account for. And in accounting for that experience, I'm not, I'm not submitting the tradition or the idea of truth to my own subjective notions, but I'm taking my subjective experience and then I'm trying to work and understanding of all the things I've thought were true, and now I want to know what's truer uh, in in the way you in the way you describe it. Is that is that fair? Uh, also, to kind of pull out that subjectivism gets to be kind of the, the the whipping post. Some of us get beat on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's a beautiful way of putting it. I, I like that. Yeah, we have we always have these subjective worlds that uh, we create. And I think uh, both religiously and philosophically, that's what we're being called out of in many ways. Uh, and yeah, the the world's got to be accounted for. We gotta we gotta be. Uh, we can't simply think that what we've always thought is how the world actually functions. I, I just I don't think we have that good of a grasp <laughs> of the world. I, I know we pretend to in the Enlightenment. We pretend like we can know all things, uh, but uh, but I'm highly critical of that. Well, it, it, let me let me see you you really. Um you, I mean, this was refreshing. Let me just, I, I don't want to, because, because here, here's, a, here's the thing. 
the one thread that you make sure is woven is the incomprehensibility of God such that it always keeps us in a position of humility when we talk about God. And, And that really is illustrated, if I'm catching all the pieces, in the um, correct way to revere tradition. Yeah. Is that, is that, 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 is that the, I, I think you're, I think you're right on. I, I'm actually curious where you're going with this because I think I, I think I see the logic and I, I think you're right well, uh, in catching what I'm trying to do. Yeah, I because th- I, here's what here's what I kind of coming out of my 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 background educationally and denominationally and my Christian tradition, the, the, you know, the branch of the tree that that I've been a part of. You know, when we start talking about authority, the the Bible gets in some ways dislodged from the tradition that birthed its interpretation. We act as though in each new era, an interpretation is new. And so one thing that we guard against, at least, again, our branch of the tree, is we are scared to death of tradition. And so the whole authority issues, and I can't remember, it was, it's been 15 years or so ago, I believe, but I, I read a book on, um, oh, I can't remember who, I wish I could remember who wrote it, but it was recommended to me because it really helped explain <clears throat> a, a better way how someone can talk about the authority of the Bible and honor tradition without equating the two. Because that's sure. always been the fear of, of, of we Southern Baptists is, is if we start talking I, about tradition, then I think it's personally, I think it's a bit of a false notion to uh, make the generalization that the uh, Roman Catholics or the Catholic Church has has said tradition is is necessarily equal to, but it's almost like a 1-1-A. One, one uh, and that was, kinda, yeah, yeah, yeah. that was kind of the description in this book that was actually written, I think, by Presbyterian, who was trying to talk about the value of tradition and do it in such a way that Protestants could re-engage their tradition in a more faithful way rather than to reinvent their own tradition as though it just kind of popped up. And, of course, if you know anything about Southern Baptists, the way we get over that is is we have worked backwards through a tradition all the way to John the Baptist. So we've got this trail of what they call blood in some, you know, threads of of of, of Baptist life. And so it's it's a way to kind of one up Peter, right? <laughs> I like it. And and so and so we have our own tradition that we kind of work that way. But the truth of the matter is, is we were birthed out of traditions that was birthed out of other traditions. And so it really is a mistake to dishonor tradition and then to always in our reflections preach and say, well, in in the history of the church, except. What we're really saying in euphemistic terms is in the history of the church that I like and that I've chosen to follow, right? And so, and so, and so that's kind of what I was picking up uh, along the way that you're, as you were pulling these threads, especially, and I, and maybe I'm just reading in, this is my interpretation, but especially as you're emphasizing the incomprehensibility of God, you're actually pulling along the way at how people were trying to talk about the incomprehensible God, and we need every step along the way from where we are. We, we, we didn't just show up on the scene. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's I, mean, I don't. Does that make any sense? Did that is that oh, even hey, part of where where you're yeah. working from with your uh, so. reference to tradition? Yeah, no, I think so. I, you know, I mean, I, I I put it this way: you you don't. We've tried. We've tried in the Enlightenment to get beyond tradition. Um, and I, that sorry, that's not to equate Baptist uh, Baptist in the Enlightenment. I, I sure, although far, we're very Enlightenment uh, modeled. <laughs> yeah. So uh, you know, I think when we're thinking tradition, it's really we we got to start with the grounding point is that we we don't get beyond tradition in some ways, or we. Or the only way to get beyond tradition is to think through tradition and hear out what tradition has been saying. So, um, so I, I guess here here's an easy here's an easy way to put it. Um, you grow up in the Jim Crow South, and you grow up believing that blacks and whites uh, are separate but equal, or not necessarily equal in the actual tradition of things. Right? It's not going to be found of that tradition uh, and saying, yeah, I wasn't a part of that or or in full acceptance of it that one ever overcomes the faults of that tradition. It's only going to be in exploring what was really at stake economically, uh, intellectually, class-wise that allows people the freedom to move on that tradition in the first place. And in some ways, I'm arguing that point in the book, that mm -hmm. if you want freedom from tradition, embrace it fully, yeah. see what dead people have said and how they've influenced you, and try to ask critical questions of truth regarding whether they're right. Now, you're also correct. I do have a Catholic notion of tradition, whereby I think tradition also plays a positive role of allowing us to, um, well, let's, let's put it this way. In the same way that our parents influence our values and teach us how to be and how to be well, I, I think that our tradition has given us uh, the interpretive tools to look at Scripture and read it well. That yeah. might be one way to yeah. say uh, to talk about how tradition functions in this Catholic sense. And even more important than uh, Scripture, uh, to look at Christ and interpret and understand Christ well. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You know, um, I, I was thinking that as we try to kind of look at some of the, uh, not pragmatic ways, but the practical ways this, this could be a help is, is that, you know, uh, Gen X, and I'm, I, I would be like on the line between Boomer and Gen X, so sure. I, I have a split personality. Um, <laughs> That's how I'm with Millennials and Gen X. And, yeah, yeah. and so when, when we start looking back and we start looking, and I, look, I talk to my adult children, and I start thinking about the ways to help my grandkids kind of learn and think through those things. Um, there, there has um, uh, been this phrase that it became popular, I don't know, within at least the last decade that you address in the book. Uh, see, spiritual but not religious. And, you know, listen, most would frankly think that a book in this particular series, where Tripp is kind of the editor, that that there would be kind of an affinity to thinking, oh, yeah, yeah, that's exactly. But you actually come out and say, hogwash. Uh, no, Let, let's rethink that. Let's, that's not even yeah. saying anything. We, we're really not even. 
So, so walk, with, walk with us what you're thinking, because I actually found that really helpful, because you get, you, you get um, paralyzed when you try to, try to engage someone who's adopted that just without reservation. And you try to say, you know, you're really lambasting religion, but the, the word really is to try, it, it means tying things together. Sure. And so, so what you're saying is, is I don't want to tie things together. You know, I'm spiritual, but I really don't want to tie reality together with my experience, with an understanding of deity, with uh, an incarnational God who functions well in the world. So I really, I really want all these loose ends. I don't want to tie anything together. I don't want to see any kind of, you know, cohesion here. I, I'm, I'm really sure. just kind of want to just float around in the, uh, in, in the ether, if you will. I, I, you, you really do a great job. So what, what, were, what was kind of one of your aims at including that particular bit? Yeah, you know, it was it was a self critique of various ways that I've thought over the course of my own uh, my own lifetime, right? So this is in some ways one of the most honest chapters because I'm directing it uh, at myself, maybe at a younger stage, but directly at myself. Um, and I think my my real point in it is to show um, you actually never get away. I, I like the way actually you're, you're defining religion here. You never get away from those connections. The question is how you're going to make those connections. Right. So if you claim to be spiritual but not religious, you're actually buying into a tradition, again that word, that emerges in uh, 18th, 19th century German Romanticism that sees uh, basically all various religions as different dots on the same page pointing towards the same ultimate truth. This is sort of the tradition that this line of thinking stems from, right? Uh, and Or any number, one of any number of traditions it might stem from. And the argument I'm really trying to make is, well, all you've done is create a separate religion right. in some ways when you've done that, because you're creating this context in which to connect all the dots. And my real problem is that you're not being honest about the religiosity that you then have. Right. Um, so if that's the route you're going to go, and I know many good people who go that route, fine, but own it in the same way that, say, a Catholic has to own the, the idea that, we we say, um, and I'm not comfortable with this, by the way. But this is this is part of the tradition. We mm-hmm. say we are the fullness of truth, and everything else is uh, partial truth leading along the way. Right. That's hard for me to say, but you got to own that if you're going to be a part of the tradition. Right. And we all are parts of the tradition, and I actually think we are all making that statement with and to one another. Yeah. We can't help but do so. Right. And that's okay. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. Well, <clears throat> so kind of maybe a, a, a little bit of a, now we, we've kind of talked about some of the, the threads, at least the, some of the, we can't talk obviously about all of them. We'd, I'd need to keep you sure. on here for several hours. Um, <laughs> but but if we're, if, if we're going to then move from there to say, okay, so here's this um, fellow is teaching theology and philosophy in Montana. He's got a lot of these really heady ideas and books, and then he gets an assignment to, to, to work with youth young people. And now it's like, yeah. oh, wow. Now I've got to make this translation. I've got to take these. Yep. So this, this book illustrates that, but what are some of the uh, other, uh, some of the things that, that you will aim for that pastors say ought to be thinking through? Because any pastor who really is trying to stay abreast of um, uh, theology and, and be be aware and take account of of answers being given to their own questions because 
any pastor, frankly, worth their salt still has questions. And so if they're not really, um, they may not be in a place where they can comfortably ask them. They may not be able to say them out loud, but there are tons of us out there who still have questions that there are things not nailed down, even on a door. And, um, and so, and so it's, it's a, uh, it's, it's a thing that, that we have to think through then if we find something that's helping us and then we want to help kind of communicate it because it's actually given us a new vibrancy to a particular issue or, or um, uh, even ministry kind of occasion, we got to figure yeah. out how to translate that. How do, we, how do we talk about that in a way that's understandable and, and we can communicate? So what, what, what are some things, what are th- some things you do employ? What are some things you work toward? How do you stay uh, current, if you will, so that you can bridge the academy uh, with this yeah. potential opportunity to, to influence young people? Yeah, that, you know, that's such a great and difficult question at one and the same time because it's it's uh, you're nailing the place where I'm struggling and what I'm trying to figure out is how to translate these things. Um, I you know part of how I try to do it in the book and it's not immediately translated into useful terms, but uh, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to be transparent, and it's uncomfortable for me sometimes in the book. Uh, but I think that transparency and showing where your own struggles with an issue, the phenomenon, uh, the life experiences that pop up that make us struggle with something, when people can sort of associate with those, it breaks down the guard that they have to the questions that you're asking and says, okay, look, maybe I don't agree with him, but I can at least hypothetically see where he's coming from. If that happened to me too, yeah, I, I might begin to question in that sort of way. So if you can tie it back to you, not yourself, but your experiences and translate those experiences into uh, how, how young people, what they're experiencing as well, then I think it, then I think it becomes, uh, that, that, that seems to be the only way that you can, uh, you can translate, uh, especially for millennials. They really seem to value transparency mm-hmm. of persons. I, I mean, for God's sake, they were raised on Facebook, right? right, right. Um, and uh, I, I put things on Facebook, Sometimes I put things on where I go, oh, should I have done that? But my students are like, yeah, of course you put that on Facebook. What's the issue? Right. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, that transparency, openness of experience, and openness of where those questions come from, I think, becomes the key. Now, how do you translate that into terms others can understand? Uh, I think just trial and error. Yeah. Oh, good, good, good. <laughs> Excellent. You you just got to be open to the people to your to your students or your interlocutors and say that makes sense. And usually the first answer to my student from my students is yeah no it didn't. Um, <laughs> it, we're gonna need something else. So then you try to find another experience, another way of uh, saying it. Uh, so there always has to be this open dialogue between uh, between teacher and student such that the teacher can become a student to the students who can ask for clarification, better communication, right? We got to get rid of this notion that we're the experts on stage with all the answers. Oh, that's excellent. And so you're describing uh, developing an art of listening. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. And and so what are some, what are some um, places and ways and areas you're, you're listening? I, I know obviously the classroom, but is that the only 
you know, only place that you're kind of listening for feedback. And I don't necessarily mean feedback from something you've said or posted, but feedback in sure. terms of what what are what are millennials or even even your own peers or even those you're senior? What, what where what what or how are you listening for those things that? Um, I mean, we're in a multi generational context, even more so as longer the longer people are living. So we're 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 having to listen so broadly. So. How do you cultivate that? What, what are some? Do you have any practices, whether even if they're unintentional, uh, that you could kind of point to? Sure. The, the first one's an intellectual one, and I have a, I have another one that's not as intellectual, but I think perhaps even more important. The first one is read dead people, um, read people whose context you don't understand, and then try to figure out what they're saying. Be faithful to them. Uh, try to figure out what they're saying well, quit, uh, you know, and use it as a chance to overcome what you want to be the case and hear them out. I think that's the, that is, if I could recommend anything to an undergraduate student, a pastor, uh, teenagers won't listen at all, so they don't count. Uh, the, <laughs> But if I could recommend anything, just just read some dead people and try to figure out what they're saying sympathetically and without trying to be uh, a critical jerk who simply thinks that what one has is the case. Mm-hmm. Now, I'll tell you the place where I'm doing the most listening in my life, and I bet you it's something you can associate with, too. And you could probably, you could probably tell me even more so uh, is with my children. Oh, um, yeah. Because I hear things come out of my uh, two-and-a-half-year-old daughter's mouth now where I go, ooh, yeah, Yeah, that was me. That was me coming out. I'm not sure that was such a good thing. Uh, And so you see, you know, they're each their own. I I am amazed uh, and find it joyful what unique persons they are from the very beginning. But they are also trained into uh, being something like their parents. And uh, you find out who you are through your own children, I think. Yeah, I think I listened to Tripp one time uh, talking about youth ministry. And I think it was something like some adults came to talk to him about the, the issues they were having with their children. And I don't know if this is something he said he wanted to say or he actually said, but he said, well, what do you think? They've internalized your own, your own psychoses, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so you you are absolutely right. There there are things you pick up and you notice, and and if you're attentive to them, then then they are kind of um, they they do expose us. But then they, like you said, then they also help us to think through. Oh, maybe I need to maybe I need to kind of think that a different way. I, I, there's something else I need to either add to, because it could be, it, it, it's not always wrong. It's sometimes incomplete. That's right. Yep. Yeah. Which is actually gets back to kind of the whole thing no, you were talking I, about truth. No, I think that's exactly right. It just, it puts you into a truthful relationship with yourself. And frankly, uh, when you're in a truthful relationship with yourself, namely, you know who you actually are, it allows you to be drawn into, and I use that passive language very purposefully. It allows you to be drawn into the truth itself. Yeah, well, that, that's that's excellent. I, you know, I, I'm glad you brought up the uh, the question of elders. I think it's one that I still struggle with, um, and I think we all do in the West in some ways because we don't listen to our elders. Right? They, we consider them passe. Right. Uh, and 
that that's I say that because I think it's worth thinking about more, and I don't know if I've thought about it a lot. It's easier for me to read dead people than it is sometimes for me to listen to living elders, and yeah. that, that's probably a mistake. Yeah, <clears throat> you know, I think that I think there I think there are things about that 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 um, um, reading dead people are helpful with, though, and 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 the reason I the reason I say that is 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 because our, we don't sometimes understand our elders' context in the same way that we might read uh, you know a dead theologian and not really get what in the world you know i read i read uh, backhouse's uh, little book on um uh kierkegaard really yeah. really fascinating really really good and and i had no idea and it was more of a you know social context that drew out some of his thinking and and so you don't i had no idea that particular context i i think a lot of that so i'm reading about a dead person and trying to capture you know that that context I don't know and sometimes I don't know the context of the elders that um, I'm I'm listening to and yep. knee jerk response is to say man they are so in the dark ages you know they're so they're so missing it I I can't believe they're still talking that way and and while <laughs> and while I certainly don't really care for some of that um, you know especially if they happen to be um, you know, some racial references or, you sure. know, what, what we might today call misogynistic. Um, there, there is a context there. It's not like they set out to yeah. say, how can I be the most racist human being in the world and, and how can I just be so patriarchal that I just make all women scared? Um, <laughs> and and so, so I think, I think you've got a, a, a good a way to kind of listen to elders by in encouraging us to listen to dead theologians or dead people. Yeah, no, 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 I think that analogy is absolutely right. Um, actually, you know, I brought this, I've even brought this up partially in my book when I start talking about uh, Not Your Grandparents' Pantheon, that chapter, right? Yes, yes. Um, because uh, we have someone whom we love very, very much who was talking about uh, the illegals, right? Right. Uh, and whatever your views on immigration, I will not claim that this is an easy issue. I know everyone says it is. Nothing easy about any of the issues we face. Um, whatever your views are, you know, look, I'm uncomfortable calling someone simply an, uh, an illegal. But does that mean that I reject this person in fullness right. because she used the phrase I'm uncomfortable with? No, I think that's how... Uh, that, that's the role of Twitter activism today, which I don't think is particularly helpful. Rather, I understand what her actual fears are, where her actual uh, context was, why, why she might say these things. And we can, even if we don't agree, we can at least say, okay, well, I mean, we, we get it, but let's, uh, let's move on. <laughs> exactly. And- yeah, exactly. No, that, that's really good. Well, <clears throat> is, there, uh, is there anything in, in the book that, um, you know, you would think m- might be, I mean, again, aside from everything, but is there anything in the book particularly that if we were thinking about um, recommending, uh, if I was going to recommend your book to some of my friends, and I said, I talked to the author, and here's something he said to pay attention to if you were a pastor and you're reading this book. Because we're assuming that most people, most pastors have had some education, even if it was a mentored yeah. education, and they've read some. And so, why why am I reading? Uh, why would why would a pastor 
uh, find value in reading a book about God when they've already decided what they think about God? I think that might be the primary reason right there, that what they think about God uh, might not be who God is. Uh, and that if we can outline for ourselves five major concepts of God and how they unfold themselves historically, we become all the more clear and free ourselves to uh, engage in the tradition of the West and how it's thought about God. Um, that would be the primary reason. And, you know, my own, I, I only get to do a little direct theology in this in and through the last chapter when I, uh, when I unfold what I think is actually a relatively Eastern Orthodox vision of who Christ is and what Christ does, right? Um, and my, my hope, whether I get it right or not, that's beside from the point, but my hope is that the West, and this includes uh, my own Catholic tradition as well, can look to see beyond the notion of the forgiveness of sins. Not that that's not important, that's part of things as well, but see God as addressing in this creation, the real suffering, the real uh, violence, and the real death that takes place, and saying a, a Barkian no to it all. Um, that, that's what I'm trying to set up there. And then we can deal with what sin is, what salvation is in this sort of personal way that the West has oftentimes dealt with it in terms of justice, in terms of morality, right? Uh, but I think we got to be clear about what the God of the universe, the order of the universe itself in some ways is doing in and through Christ, calling us back to life, calling us to the garden in which we were originally created, metaphorically speaking for me, uh, and drawing us into the fullness of relationship with the divine in a world that no longer fosters uh, death and destruction. Oh, yeah. You know, and, and this this brings to mind... Um, Oh, I, I think it's page, um, I think it's 71. And it was right before your God is, um, is God spiritual but not religious. This this was just, I mean, you were putting a couple of threads together. And if God is one who saves, God must be able to draw out of us our best, most unselfish possibilities, which means God must relate to us. So while God's primary philosophical meaning has to do with the identity undergirding all things in the world, God's biblical identity pertains to relating to this world and calling it back to the divinely pulsating melody, not merely its own. The incomprehensible God is the one who actively beckons this world, one who calls us to reject the disharmonies within the world as we become familiar and even enhance and stand once more in cosmic solidarity with both God and all of creation as God shines light on these new things. That starts with the concept of Miyagi, but doesn't end with him. To me, that I, I just outlined that whole thing. Got several booms all the way throughout the book, you know, good good lines. But but that right there is is what I sense as something that grasps the imagination of Gen Xers, of millennials, of Gen Y, gonna get gonna get Gen Z and ever is the material realities that we're talking about. That I can see why you stopped along with Plato for a couple of years, but you ha- had the, the the material had to take on yeah. such a concreteness that it makes sense that when you get to the end of the book and and you're really kind of pointing to incarnation, which you've already made reference yeah. to as significantly important early on, that is the place where materiality takes up res- it t- takes up importance. It, that, that's where it becomes, and that's the part that I think is pretty hard when. 
in my particular tradition, it does have a Neoplatonist sort of ring to it when it's really kind of this uh, disembodied escapism that the, sure. the that you know and and when some of us come along and say wait a minute it's more than that it's almost like we've decided to downplay uh, sin downplay forgiveness downplay redemption and, and and those themes and instead we're kind of saying well we've swung the pendulum so far over here that the only cure for that is a really full-throated incarnational uh, grasp that God God came into the world so something about the world had to be worth engaging and participating, not getting out of, you know. And so I really appreciate that. I you know, I thank you for that guy. I think it's something that this this is all traditions and maybe with the exception maybe of Eastern Orthodoxy, uh, I say maybe because it, it certainly has Gnostic strains as well. Catholicism has its Gnostic strains, right? But you know, I think back to the Ark, right? And uh, <laughs> and in the Ark, which is sort of a, a metaphor for the salvation to come, uh, God is saving the whole of the world. He's unleashing the chaos from which the world was created, but he saves bits and pieces of each of this, right? In the two-by-two two animals, mm-hmm, right? right. Uh, I then think through Isaiah, uh, when Isaiah discusses the lion laying with the lamb um, and the child playing next to the den of the adder. And I know someone like N.T. Wright will say, and I love N.T. Wright, uh, he will say, look, this is a political statement, talking about how um, Jerusalem will exist next to Nineveh in some ways. And I go, yeah, it's also a cosmological vision that I think uh, emerges throughout the biblical text and is saying that something went awry in the whole of creation uh, that God did not want and is being called back to. And I look to the end in Revelation uh, with the reemergence of the new Jerusalem come down, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. And now creation is set straight and set aright as it was always supposed to have yeah. been. So yeah, yeah, I think this the materiality is really easy, right? At the end of the day, think about losing someone you love. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> You're, I mean, yeah, Think about losing a family member, and and all of this makes sense. And it comes back to Paul's notion in Galatians that you don't need to cry anymore because they're not fully dead. Right. <laughs> However, you want to. Right, right, so, right. Yeah, I think the materiality of all this stuff, and the and the affirmation of the incarnation on the material, and you know what the ancient church calls recapitulation—that in the new Adam of Christ, all things are being restored to what they were supposed to be. This is utterly insane. from a modern perspective maybe from an ancient perspective too right uh but it's also the beauty that draws us in to the possibility that it could be true yeah yeah oh yeah yeah that could take us on for another hour right there (laughs) i think it could (laughs) (laughs) well listen man this is uh this has been fun and uh, yeah. I, uh, I, I've enjoyed your book. Um, it, it'll be one that I, I look to to use with some young people who are kind Thank of struggling you. and wrestling. It, it will be a really innovative way to get them to understand some of the concepts that they might not otherwise, you know, uh, engage as, as, uh, as directly as they might. But your um, cultural images that you use as metaphors are are really, really helpful. And uh, I appreciate your work, man. Yeah, thank you so much. And if if you ever want to do a session with any of the young people and we want to talk through some of this stuff and 
just let me know. I, you know, this is a passion of mine as well. I write this from the heart. So, uh, that, that'd be, that'd be amazing to get to work with you in that capacity a little bit. Oh, that'd be fun. Yeah. I will, uh, uh, we just may start work on that sometime, you know, after the first of the year, may t- try to put something together and do that. That would be, that'd be fantastic. That'd be great. I want to thank you for listening. I hope you listened all the way to the end and just want to encourage you that uh, we're looking at some really good interview possibilities in this new year. I want to thank all of you who've listened uh, in the past and who helped spread the word and let your friends pastor friends know about uh, Pathological. Uh, as always, you could do us a favor, uh, give us uh, some feedback. So you could, in the comments on the blog post where, say, this uh, episode will show up, or uh, shoot me an email at uh, doc period todd at gmail.com. That's doc.todd at gmail.com. And we'll work to uh, include your suggestions and maybe you have an idea for a theme, a subject, or a somewhat interview. And uh, always, always want to say thank you and appreciate you. Uh, until next time, this has been Todd Littleton with Pathological, the podcast for a pastor theologian. Remember, you can find us at pathological.com, pathological.net, or toddlittleton.net. You can subscribe to us on, on iTunes, Stitcher, your favorite podcatcher. And again, as always, help us out and leave us a rating and review. Till next time, peace.